our church, we are uh, doing this outdoor gathering thing uh, here in Liberty Station. We normally um, are in Uptown, uh, historically. Uh, the other thing is we're starting off a new sermon series today. We're going to be in the book of Romans. So if you have Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 1. The series is called Gospel Depth. But before we get into today's teaching and before we get into today's text, I wanted to take a moment by starting, off, uh, starting us off with a time of prayer. Um, in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 8, we're not even going to look at these verses today, um, but Paul says this about his relationship to the church at Rome and the, the relationship that other Christians at other churches and other spaces and places and cities and, and uh, territories had with the church at Rome. So in Romans 1 verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith, the church at Rome's faith, is being reported in all the world. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And so in the American Western church, we often have a paradigm of church where it's just our local church. I've even heard people talk about expanding the kingdom, and they're literally just talking about their local church when you dig into the details. But we see in the New Testament that there were these, um, you know, there were dozens, you know, and in the early first century, hundreds of autonomous local churches, but they were connected to one another, that they partnered in the gospel. They heard, about, they heard stories about each other's faith. God did this in our community. God did this in your community. So all over the world, they're a family that's interdependent and interconnected, though it has a specific local expression. But the other thing we see is that they pray for each other. And so today, um, there's a church we're connected to, Anthem Denver. Uh, Josh Lewis was here a few weeks ago leading worship. Um, they did a relaunch today. Uh, in Denver. And so right now in this moment, there are people in that space, in that place, um, encountering Jesus potentially for the first time and his church for the first time. And so I wanted to just take one minute to pray for them and the way that Paul does here, uh, the way that Paul says that he does pray for the Romans here. And so Father, I just want to, um, as we're stored uptown, um, we want to pray for our um, our sister church, uh, Anthem Denver. And we ask God that you would um, bless them this morning. I pray, God, um, for um, the leaders there. I pray for those who've been on the launch team for a while, trying to plant a church during COVID. I'm sure it can be discouraging. Leading a church during COVID can be discouraging. And so, Lord, I just pray for um, just tastes of fruit today, initial bites, initial tastes of the fruits. And I also pray for men and women who are coming in who maybe have never heard the gospel message before, never engaged with um, people who are serious about following Jesus before God, that they um, would want to know more, uh, that they would want to follow him. So right now in this moment, for the people that are in that space and place at this moment, Lord, would you bless them? Would you reveal something of yourself to them? And would they start a journey that would leave them never the same? In Jesus' name, amen. So stay in Romans 1. And that's where we're going to be for today's message. So today, yeah, we're starting a series called Gospel Depth. Um, And so today, um, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans. Um, We're going to be in Romans for pretty much the entire year. I'll talk about why that is in a second. Um, Today, we're basically going to do one verse. 
one and a half, okay? Uh, we're going to do three verses, but two of them we're going to relook at next week. So it's, it's not really uh, true. All right, so, so today I want to answer um, a couple questions, all right? So, so we're going to be looking um, at the book of Romans. And so today I want to answer three questions. Number one, why study Romans? Number two, who wrote, who wrote Romans and to whom? And three, what is Romans about, okay? So number one, why study Romans? Uh, for one thing, um, the greatest Christian leaders for the last 2,000 years have maintained that Romans is the most important theological book ever written. Um, and it cha- has changed people's lives and led to movements and awakenings that have changed the world. I'll give you two examples, two guys with two very different stories. Um, about 1,700 years ago, there was a, a guy who lived in modern-day Algeria and Tunisia, an uh, African guy, uh, a guy who was not a follower of Jesus. He was a wild pagan, and he was super, um, oh, I was forget about the kids. Uh, he had a lot of physical interactions with ladies, uh, and, uh, and he was kind of known for that, and he was a wild bachelor of a man, and, and, uh, and, and he was looking literally looking for love in all the wrong places. Uh, and he actually describes that later, that he was on a search uh, kind of to fill his heart, that he was grasping uh, for someone that could fulfill him. So this is not a religious man by any stretch. Um, it's a man who's wilding and looking for pleasure. And one day he, uh, he heard a, a, uh, the voice of a child reading from Romans chapter 14. And he said it changed his life. And that man became a man named St. Augustine. Uh, and so he's a man who had lived a, wild, a life of wild licentiousness, uh, a life of wild living, kind of the younger brother in the prodigal son's story. And Jesus reveals himself to him through the book of Romans, the satisfaction he had been looking for, um, he found. Um, about a thousand years later, there's a different guy, very different man, different continent. He's in Europe. He's in Germany. Um, and he is not a wild and licentious man. He is a legalist. Matter of fact, he's a monk with a very bad haircut. He's got the Friar Tuck haircut going on, San Diego Padres vibe. Uh, he has taken on, uh, uh, he's, he's living uh, a form of a vow of poverty. Um, and he thinks God hates him. He thinks God is angry with him all the time. He fasts for days on end. He prays for hours on end. Um, he even beats himself physically to feel pain because he wants to punish himself. He is highly religious, and it's very toxic religion. And he, th- he studies the Bible constantly, and he thinks, um, you know, he's a legalist. He's looking for um, a way to be made right with God. He's not looking for for the satisfaction of this world. He wants to know he could be right with God. And his name was Martin Luther. And he ends up kicking off the Reformation, which um, kicks off the the start of the the Protestant movement, which is what our church would fall under today, 500 years later in a different continent and space and place. And I want you to see wild, pagan, really restricted religious guy the same book changes their life to the point where they give their life to the message of it for the rest of their lives. And it changes the world around them. They move from, from legalism and licentiousness to, to love. Uh, the other thing I was to say is, I, so, so, so I, I think it's super important that we look at that. Uh, I think we're in a, a season in world history where something needs to change. And whenever Romans is taught, it seems to change things. Um, 
Um, I've also been the lead preaching pastor here for a little over eight years, and we've never taught through Romans. We taught through Romans 12 over like six weeks, like six years ago, considering um, how important this book is in Christian history and how found and how important it is, um, we thought we'd jump into it. But maybe you're wondering why now, all right? And I, I think I have two reasons for why now I think our church should study Romans. The first is this, is I think we need to be refreshed by grace after a truly terrible year. We need to be refreshed by grace after a truly terrible year. I found that many of us need gospel refreshment. You are tired. You are thirsty. It's so easy to experience in tough times what we, we've called gospel amnesia in the past. And the more stressful and reactive our surroundings, the easier it is to lose sight of who Jesus is, what he has done, who we are in him, and how we're called to live in light of that. But to remember what's important and what isn't. One of the things I've seen uh, in so many disciples, not just in our church, but I've seen um, some of the most misplaced priorities I've seen in years that COVID has brought out via stress and uncertainty and fear. And Romans deals with all of that stuff thoroughly. So before we get back to the rebuilding of this church in 2021, we wanted to remind you um, of why we do what we do and come back to the heart of everything. We're gonna be re-looking at what Jesus has done and how he calls us to live in light of it, to experience a relationship with God Jesus provided for us in the gospel. So one, we want to refresh you with grace because it seems like more than ever we need refreshment. Number two, we want to reestablish a gospel culture as we replant our church. Again, last week we talked about repair and doing reparative work and replanting. And um, whenever Restored plants a church, by the way, we encourage the leadership team of that church to focus on our values. And historically, they were gospel, family, mission, dependence, and multiplication. And we actually told them, teach through those values in order because they build on each other. And here's what I mean. The gospel is this idea that in Christ, God is, uh, Jesus has reconciled you to God. You now have a way to receive his love that you couldn't earn, that you can't lose, that you don't deserve. And that love changes us. And then, like First John says, we love because he first loved us. So then we move towards family. We can love each other like family because we have been loved. And as men and women see our love for one another, when they see that we're his disciples, um, they're interested in that. And so the mission advances. But loving God and loving people can be hard, which is why we need to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. And that dependence aspect comes into what we do. And after that church culture is developed, we want to do it all over again and multiply gospel work and gospel family through more local churches. And so in many ways, we're replanting our church this year in 2021. And so we thought we would take our own counsel and start with a deep dive into the gospel by preaching through Romans verse by verse for the majority of 2021. Uh, You may be wondering, why are we going to preach through this for over a year? Um, And the reason is it's kind of tied to the the title of the series, Gospel Depth. Um, There is so much in this book. It is surprisingly deep. Uh, Jackie and I went on a trip to Mexico earlier this year, and on one of our days, we swam in a a cenote. I don't know if you guys know what those are. Uh, They're basically like, um, they're like sinkholes that go in pretty deep that form naturally, like limestone drops. It's kind of complicated, but long story short, they're kind of like natural swimming pools that develop uh, underground, and so they're a couple stories down, and they're really, really beautiful, Um, and I remember we we jumped in, and they said, no, 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 uh, before we jumped in, they said, hey, you have to put on a life jacket. And I said, that's cool. I'm a grown man. And I'm on vacation. 
and it's COVID. He's like, hey, we, we sanitize them. I'm like, I don't know. And, uh, and he said, I said, this, this isn't that big. Like, why do we need, like, I, I know how to swim. We've got a little dock here. Um, there, there's signs around. He said, well, this is 110 feet deep. So if you sink down, it's, it's kind of a big deal. It's going to be hard to get you. And so it was so much deeper than, than we were experiencing swimming, or should I say skimming on the top. We were having a wonderful experience. It was phenomenal, but there was way more than met the eye. And the, the gospel is like that. It can be enjoyed on the surface for sure. You first become a Christian for sure, but you could dive much deeper into it and experience much more of it. By the way, if a year feels like it's too long of a sermon series, I just want to put out there that John Piper preached through Romans for more than four years with over 220 sermons, all right? So it could, be, it could be wilder if you're like, man, this is too long of a series. So a one-year series is pretty reasonable. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through Romans 6 for like five months, so uh, it, it could be wilder. So a one-year series is pretty reasonable when you consider how rich and deep this letter is and why I think we need to jump into it, all right? So that's why we're studying Romans, which leads to number two, uh, who wrote Romans? And to do that, we're actually gonna look at the text of scripture. If you guys have Bibles, turn to Romans chapter one. By the way, um, if you didn't get a CSB scripture notebook on your way in, please, uh, can, can we pass those out? Can you raise your hand if you didn't get one? We're also taking communion today. So um, if you need uh, your word or your sacrament, uh, just raise your hand, uh, we will get that to you. Ethan, I don't know if anyone's gonna see you uh, that far over, just if you wanna pop over for just a second. Um, just so they can see you. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Okay. So uh, we want everyone in the church uh, to take these. They're free. They weren't free. We bought them, but they're bought now. Um, we want you to have them. Um, uh, again, I think carrying, lugging a Bible around is tricky in our, our day, um, but I think it's much better than being on a phone. And so uh, this just has the book of Romans with some journaling space. We encourage you to bring this with you every week. Write your name in it uh, in case you lose it, whatever phone number at the front. Um, but we would love um, to, to make this your friend where, where you are diving into Romans on the regular. You have it in your purse, in your bag, in your backpack, in your car. Um, you can consistently meditate on this. This super rich book. So if you guys want to grab that, I'm going to read Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. I actually read too much there. It should have just been verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So who wrote Romans? Spoiler alert, the apostle Paul. If you aren't familiar with Paul, he was a former Pharisee. And Pharisees were a sect in Judaism. They were hyper-devoted to obeying the Old Testament law, hundreds of laws and rules. And also, they had like a million amendments. amendments. They had a bunch of amendments to all the laws. Uh, they had thousands uh, of laws. They were kind of the, the fundamentalist religious people of their day in their space and place. And in Philippians, Paul tells us he was not just any Pharisee. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He trained under a man named Gamaliel, um, who was a uh, you know, rabbinical expert uh, leader of the Pharisees. He was one of the most sought after teachers of his day. It's kind of like going to the Harvard of Phariseeism. Uh, you know, he's Ivy League. Uh, and, and, and again, Paul even says, like, just so you guys know, um, there's Pharisees, but I was better than all of them. When it came to obeying the law, I did it better than everyone. I was blameless. Uh, for sure, Paul would have had most, if not all, of the Old Testament memorized. He would have been wealthy when he met Jesus. 
Um, but here's the thing. He was so zealous, so passionate about obeying the law, about his religion, that he devoted himself to destroying Christians who he saw as a threat to the worship of the true God. Um, now, again, we may see that as a bad thing, but Paul thought that was a very good thing, right? He, again, he, he, matter of fact, later on in the New Testament, Paul says, um, God saved me just to prove to anyone else that he could save and use anybody. It's like, have you ever killed anyone? God can save you. Have you ever participated? Uh, have you ever helped someone murder someone just because they worshiped Jesus? That was me. I'm a church planner now. Maybe he can make all things new. Maybe there's no one he can't forgive or redeem. But Paul, again, he realized that his zeal for being good had led him to a really bad place. Um, a lot of progressives in our culture and kind of new atheists will talk a lot about how religion makes people bigots. It makes them judgmental. It makes them self-righteous. It makes them unloving. And it makes them arrogant. And the apostle Paul would be like, I agree with that. I agree with that. That's where it took me. But one day on the road to Damascus, Jesus knocks Paul down. He blinds Paul. He reveals himself to Paul. And nothing is the same. You can read about this story in Acts chapter 9, the next book over in your New Testament. And that day, Paul, on the road to Damascus, he began a journey of detoxing from his addiction to religion, to understanding the difference between religion and grace to experiencing and offering the gospel to others himself. It's like there's, there's the gospel, there's religion, and I'm picking the gospel and I'm giving it to others. And I want you to catch the thing he built his identity on. He is fundamentally rejected to follow Jesus. That's not radical Christianity. That's just normal discipleship. We go, the thing that I thought mattered most matters less. The thing that I thought defined me defines me a lot less than I thought Again, pretty much every religion in the world teaches some form of the message. You are defined by your performance. And if you perform well enough, God or the gods will accept you. That's what Martin Luther was grappling with. This is what Paul was grappling with. Now, what constitutes a good performance is different in different faith traditions. In Islam, you have the five pillars of Islam. In Buddhism, you've got the noble eightfold path. Um, you have a very complex set of sacrifices and rituals in Hinduism, a mosaic law that people like Paul uh, could be turned into a performance-based religion. Uh, Mormonism, you can't drink coffee or drink beer, which man is not a faith for uptown San Diego. And even modern-day secularism says you are defined by your performance. That is the heartbeat of cancel culture and public shaming, right? If you fail to do the right thing, you're condemned, so, by the way, that's not new. That's what we do as humans. That's why every religion that's been created by humans follows kind of the same thing. But the gospel is the opposite of religion. It teaches that God offers salvation, not to those who earn it as a reward based on their performance, but those who are unworthy and receive it as a gift. A gift. Paul went from church persecutor to church planner. He went from law enforcer to grace proclaimer. In John Stott's brilliant commentary on Romans, he says this about Paul's introduction of himself in Romans 1.1. As a Pharisee, Paul had set himself apart for the law, but now God has set him apart for the gospel. Thus, in the very first sense of this epistle, we encounter the letter's basic juxtaposition of law and gospel, which from one point of view is the theme of Romans. 
So that's Paul. And that's how he became an apostle. But he's not just an apostle. He introduces himself as a servant. The Greek word doulos. It really, it really translates like bond slave, which is a hard thing to hear. It's the lowest form of a servant, kind of the lowest of the low. And that would be the opposite of what he had going for him as a respected Pharisee. I want you to see that. He would have been, I'm up here performing well so I can look down on people. That's the, that's the purpose of toxic religion. I create a cast of people to look down on. But, but he goes, no, I, I'm a servant. I get underneath people now because Jesus got underneath me and served me. And, and again, he sees his relationship to Jesus as the reason to lower himself and serve both Jesus and others. As a Pharisee, when Paul encountered people who were sinful and dysfunctional, he'd be like, well, you're just getting what you deserve. You were phenomenal like me. If you were crushing the law game, maybe your life would go better. But now in light of the gospel, he says, yeah, I've got problems too, if I'm honest. And thank Jesus he didn't stop pursuing me. Thank God he didn't, he didn't give up on me. As a Pharisee, when people... Uh, treated Paul wrong or badly, he would respond with revenge, which is the natural reflex of the human heart when wronged or wounded. If you treat me badly, I will make you pay. Now, Paul would say things like, I've treated Jesus badly too. He was literally wounded because of me and I extend grace and forgiveness. As a Pharisee, when Paul saw saw someone in need, maybe in poverty, he would say, what I have is mine, I earned it. And I don't owe it to anybody, kind of losing sight of the fact that God created him and gave him the gifts and gender and space and place he lived to attain that financial reality. He might say, hey, I've earned it. I don't owe it to anybody. Maybe when he wanted to feel good about himself, he'd give some alms here and there, but he'd make sure everyone knew about it, like Jesus uh, rebuked the Pharisees over, right? Maybe he, maybe he had the saxophone player going up to drop in the, like the two nickels. Check me out. But now in the gospel, Paul would say things like, thank God Jesus didn't keep what was his for himself. Otherwise, I would be broke spiritually. One author says, when you see the gospel of grace, it produces in us a fundamentally different spirit than zealousness and religion does. Religion makes you proud and self-centered. The gospel makes you humble and generous. I love that. So that's Paul. When did Paul write the letter? A little sub question. Paul's letter to the Romans was written about 56 to 58 AD. Let's just call it 57 AD. I don't know why we don't do that, but I guess, you know, we want to be honest. We're not totally sure. Um, It was somewhere in the middle of the first century when Paul was likely in Corinth on his third missionary journey. Um, Some people say that the way he describes humanity looks a lot like humanity looked in Corinth. Um, But either way, it was written about 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, 30 years is not that long in the big scheme of things, 30 years ago for us was 1991. In 1991, the big movie was Terminator 2. You guys remember that movie? Anybody remember that? Maybe everyone's too young for that, maybe. I don't know. Um, The movie Terminator 2 came out starring the future governor of California. We all saw it coming, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was only five years old in 1991, but I remember enough of it. I remember watching it and being terrified of the villain, T-1000. He was like a, I don't know, he was like a metal liquid that would turn into a, you know, he would shapeshift. It seems like nothing killed him. And the fact that I remember that's either a very low-grade trauma that my parents let me watch that, or I have an amazing memory. 
either way, I remember T2 as a five-year-old. I remember the phrase, I'll be back. But if I'm honest, I don't remember a ton about the plot line. I do remember the characters and roughly what was happening. Now, the Apostle Paul was, was close friends. He was church family with men and women who were up close and personal with Jesus. They were still alive when he wrote this letter, Jesus, when Jesus himself was on this earth. And many of them were with him for at least three years. So he knew people that spent roughly three years with Jesus as recently as the movie Terminator 2 came out. And they were adults when their memories of Jesus were formed. They weren't five. He also said, I'll be back in one way or another. But even though the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were much more recent in Paul's day, he still thought that the Roman Christians needed to be reminded of the gospel. They likely had forgotten maybe not the facts of the gospel, but they likely lost track of what it all meant and how it had the power to change their reality. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 1, verse 7. He says, to, this is who he writes to, to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called by saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think if you were here today, you'd say, man, to all who are in San Diego, loved by God, called as saints. This is your gospel identity. This is what's now true of you in Jesus. And so why study Romans? I want you to see that, by the way, he wrote it to Christians. The book of Romans is a book about the gospel for Christians. And we are Christians who need the gospel in 2021. It is hard out there. And so we want to go deeper and deeper, and we want to find that the gospel is more refreshing than we knew. And so who wrote Romans? Paul did. Um, Last question I want to answer is, what is Romans about? And the short answer is the gospel. In Romans chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, he says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Again, I want to preach the gospel to you Christians. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. And at this uh, time, uh, Jews would have viewed the world through one lens. There's Jewish people and there are people who are not Jewish. He's saying all of humanity. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And the word for faith in Greek, it's synonymous with the word for trust. Faith can feel kind of ethereal and very religious-y. But the word trust, I think, is a little clarifying for us. Do you trust that God will do what he said he'll do? Do you trust him? You're saved by trusting him. We were at the beach yesterday walking, and there was some crazy situation uh, out in the water. We couldn't get the whole thing, uh, but it did involve someone getting rescued. And so trust is, are you going to let the lifeguard pull you in? It's not faith. I mean, I believe in lifeguards. It's trust. I believe in you enough that you're, I trust you, and I, I believe that you want to, and you are able to rescue me in this moment. Now, so, 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 so the righteous will live by trust. One author has a book called Ruthless Trust. I love that idea, ruthless faith. Also, I want you to see that the gospel is the power of God. It doesn't say the gospel contains the power of God or is a way to experience the power of God. It says itself is the power of God. The gospel is the only thing in the Bible besides Jesus himself 
that's referred to directly as the power of God. I remember I used to be at a church and they had a, a prayer ministry called dunamis, and that, that's the word for power here. Now, that's actually the root word for where we got the phrase, uh, the word dynamite. Dynamite, right? It's a powerful charge, a powerful explosion. Now, Paul didn't know about dynamite. I, we don't believe in time travel theologically as a church. Uh, it's not something we're up to. But, but the point is, is that there was such a power that that's the word Paul used. And then later on, when, when there was something so powerful, it could blow things up. They go, oh, that, that, that makes sense. We, we want a word that would describe that kind of power. They go, oh, the, you know, the word for power that, that Paul used to describe the gospel. Now, Paul might not have known about dynamite, but I still think it's a great image to us when thinking of the gospel. The gospel is God's power to redeem, to heal, to bring back from the dead. The gospel has the power to blow up dysfunction and sin in our life without blowing us up as sinful, dysfunctional people. The gospel is not about a new uh, way to live or a new strategy. It's not... um, Here's some tips on changing. It's the power to change itself. And again, family, we need power right now. I am more aware that than at any time I've been a pastor that we need the power of God. We can be so weak. We can be so short-sighted, like 2 Peter talks about. And so the gospel is the power of God. But what is the gospel? Uh, Well, the word in Greek literally means good news. I don't know if you guys know this. Gospel uh, was not a religious word originally. Um, it, It just meant good news. And the way the word was used prior to the New Testament, in the first century, if an emperor won a great battle, which secured peace and established his rule, he would send messages, uh, messengers with a gospel message. Okay, so they didn't have social media, they didn't have live tweeting, uh, they didn't have, uh, you know, cable news, they didn't have, um, they, had a lot, they didn't have a lot of things we don't need now, but, 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 but they, they didn't have, uh, the way you communicate was a guy would go town to town and say, I've got a gospel, I've got a message for you. You know, here's the gospel of Caesar. He has won this battle in this place. I'm here to declare victory and peace and authority. I'm announcing victory. And the gospel is the announcement that Jesus has defeated Satan, sin, and death. Now, now again, those messengers wouldn't come around shouting good advice. If you do this, we will win. <laughs> We're close. <laughs> Someone join in. There's a space for that, but that wouldn't be a gospel announcement. That'd be a a plead for help. No, they shouted, here is what your king has done for you. It's not an invitation for you to come and help fight. It's news about a battle that's already been won. So what is the gospel of God? Uh, The simple definition is the good news that Jesus is our gracious king. The complex definition would be the gospel is the good news that Jesus the son of God and descendant of David has become king of the world by graciously fulfilling God's promises to Israel through his life, death, and resurrection. And now is now graciously inviting all people to participate in expanding his kingdom as his beloved kids and saints. And so Paul says in this gospel, in this powerful gospel, in it is the righteousness of God the righteousness of God. Now I want to rewind back to one of the guys we referenced earlier today to talk about this idea of righteousness can feel like an ethereal concept. What does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? I want to quote Martin Luther, again, that guy who is trying to be righteous but can never quite get there. And he's this legalistic monk. He said, I have been captivated with a remarkable, although also written 500 years ago, translated from German. It can be a little clunky, all right, but there's some, some gospel heat in here. 
I've been captivated with a remarkable ardor for understanding Paul and the epistle to the Romans. But up until then, it was not the cold blood about the heart, but a single saying in chapter 1, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. That stood in my way, for I hated the word righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all my teachers, I had been taught to understand philosophically of the formal or active justice, as they called it by which God is righteous and punishes sinners and the unrighteous. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt I was a sinner before God with a most disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my attempts at satisfaction. I did not live and did I, indeed I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners secretly, if not blasphemously, Certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God, yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Finally, by the mercy of God, as I meditated day and night, I paid attention to the context of the words. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. This then is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, the passive righteousness with which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous one lives by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of all scripture showed itself to me. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. So Martin Luther here is talking about passive righteousness. That's a righteousness you receive. Think passive income. It's income that comes in, you don't do much for once it's set up. It's a righteousness you don't do anything for. Another way to describe this gift is called gift righteousness. That's what our friends at Surge have been calling it, gift righteousness. The gospel teaches the concept of gift righteousness, where the king wins a victory over sin and death. But here's the thing. We, we are sinners who are going to die on paper. So how do we not get destroyed by that victory? And it's because the king offers us a pardon. He offers us his righteousness. And so gift righteousness is the idea that we're not made righteous by our performance, but by the performance of Jesus in our place. It's not a righteousness you earn, but a righteousness given to you. Because Jesus lived a perfect life and died in my place, the minute I put my faith in him and ask him to make what he did on the cross count for me, I am made righteous in an instant. Which helps you understand how Martin Luther could go, man, I, I felt set free in an instant. It changed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. So Romans is is, is about the gospel, which is the power of God itself, which we live um, out of and in by faith. I experienced this recently in a fresh way. Uh, Some of you guys know this about two years ago. Um, 
uh, I, I got a call. Um, I, I got a call. I was taking Clive to basketball, uh, baseball practice, and I got a call uh, from a, a man I hardly know um, who lives. He's a part of Restore Los Angeles, and he called me and he um, and he just said, "Hey, Andy." Um, it was a long story, but he said, "Hey, um, uh, my wife and I came into quite a bit of money. We already have quite a bit of money, and we feel like God's told us to give you money for a down payment for a house." Uh, it was over $100,000, which is no small thing. Um, I was pretty confused. I don't know how often you get calls like that, uh, day in and day out. Uh, I'd never heard of a story like this, and I just kept saying, I don't, I don't understand. Is this a loan? He's like, it's not a loan. I'm like, did, did Brad make you do? Like, what's going on? Um, how do you even know? I hardly know this, you know, this guy. And, um, and, and, and eventually he just, he just walks us through it. Now, um, the act of generosity was insane, but it pales in comparison to the gift we've already received to the cross of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. I had to receive the gift from this, this couple by faith. I had to, to trust. Again, faith in the New Testament synonymous with trust. And here's what I mean. I had to receive the gift by faith. Even though that generous couple was willing to pay, I could refuse their gift. I could say, I don't need your money. Who are you to assume you have resources I don't have? I could try, I'm going to go, hey, I'm going to pay this back. My, my, I'm going to do this myself. It's going to take a century, and I'm going to buy a house in Oklahoma, but I'll do it myself. Right? That's kind of what religious people do with Jesus. They go, I, I don't need, no, 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 I don't need your grace. I'm a good person. Also, our culture does that. I'm amazing, right? I'm a snowflake. I'm awesome. I could also say, I don't, and I said this, I don't deserve your money, right? I, I can't take it. I did say that. And he said, you know what? You don't deserve it. He said that. He said, you don't deserve it. But I want to give it to you. And he reminded me, he said, um, Jesus gave me a gift I don't deserve. Now I want to give you a gift that, that I don't deserve. Um, I want to give you a gift that you don't deserve. But again, I could have doubled down and said, I don't deserve it. I could have not given him my banking details, right? This would be the person who thinks they're too bad to be forgiven. I can't let Jesus pay that penalty for me. I have to do it myself. Or I could say, um, or, I, or I could say, hey, I can't pay this myself. I don't deserve this, but I humbly and gratefully receive your insane gift, this insane sacrificial gift. And it's the same with Jesus. We have to receive the gift of his righteousness earned through his sacrifice. We have to admit we have need. We have to let him meet our need through faith, through pistos, through trust. That is why believing in Jesus for salvation, by the way, it's not an arbitrary thing. You hear people claim, they'll make the charge, you know, in a pluralistic society to claim that your religion is the true religion is offensive. It's wrong. Why, why Jesus and not Muhammad or Buddha? It seems arbitrary and proud. Now, the reason that it's not, the reason that that's um, uh, not arrogant is, is I'm not just saying I believe in Jesus instead of Buddha. Uh, faith in Jesus is saying, I'm trusting another to do what I cannot do for myself, okay? It's, uh, picking a faith isn't like, um, I like Jesus more than Buddha. It's, it's not the way my kids pick their favorite basketball player, like arbitrary, random. You're like, I don't get it. Um, my son Calvin's favorite basketball player for a while was a guy named Aaron Baines, who's a very mediocre basketball player. But he had a man bun, and Calvin thought it was cool. It's on the Celtics for a year. It's like Kyrie Irving, no thanks, that man bun, right? It's not an arbitrary, oh, I like this faith over this faith. It's saying Jesus is the only one who's offered to pay my bill. That's why I'm receiving from him. The other faiths are calling me to pay my own bill. And they keep raising the stakes. 
Every other faith says, do these things to attain salvation. The Christian should humbly say, I'm so bad that Jesus had to die for me, but I'm so loved that Jesus was glad to die for me, as as our, our friend Tim Keller would say. There should be no pride in our confession of Jesus as Savior. Christians should not be self-righteous, by the way. Gift righteousness is the opposite of self-righteousness. Gift righteousness is I couldn't pay, but I've got a generous father. Christians should be the least self-righteous people in the world. We should never forget where we came from. One guy puts it this way. We should never forget who brought us to the dance. Dance with the one who, who brought you. It's so weird into weird Christian church subculture stuff. You forget that Jesus is the reason you know him because we couldn't do anything to make it happen on our own, right? It'd be ridiculous for me to brag about the fact that we were able to buy a house in San Diego, um, right? It was awkward when people would congratulate us. I go, I, I, we didn't, it wasn't our planning or strategizing or saving that made this happen. Our house is a, is a gift of grace. There's no pride in that. That being said, the facts are that, 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 um, not, that not everyone in this world was making the offer to me. So if I go, hey, hey here's who did this for us, it's not arrogant. It's like, that's just who did it. Uh, no one else w- w- was offering this thing. And so to say that that generous couple paid our down payment is a matter of arrogance, but a fact. So faith saves you because it is saying, I believe you can meet my need. I believe you will meet my need. Faith is saying, I trust that your sacrifice for my debt will clear in the economy of heaven. And so we ended up signing documents during that escrow process that promised that we would wire the down payment money over into an escrow account by a certain date, but the money wasn't in our account when we signed. I was trusting that people who had that money would wire it to meet our need, to pay our debt. We could not pay for ourselves. And as amazing as the generosity of that couple was, it's not a perfect analogy because Jesus, while we received it by faith, while we didn't deserve it or earn it, Jesus bought us the whole house in the gospel. There's no spiritual mortgage. If you make spiritual mortgage payments, it's not Christianity. We don't help pay it off. He pays it in full. It is finished. And so so through the sacrificial generosity of Jesus, you and I have a new spiritual start, not financially, but spiritually. We now have access to what only Jesus should have access to, what he earned. Access to benefits like a father in heaven, the Holy Spirit, a new identity, a new inheritance, a new family, a new destiny, a new future, a new hope, all because of Jesus. Isn't that good news? Those glorious benefits of the gospel are what we're going to unpack over the next year in Romans. Followers of Jesus need the gospel as much as those who don't yet follow Jesus because followers of Jesus need grace, just like everyone else. We're in a culture that doesn't believe in grace anymore but we need it more than we ever have. Grace isn't like water, it's like air. It makes you right, and it gives you the power to change. Uh, Some would say grace is like whiskey, not air or water. Uh, Following Martin Luther's rediscovery of the gospel, the Reformation followed. And the Reformation happened as they studied Romans. Don't miss that. The Reformation is often described as a rediscovery of grace in response to some of the performance-driven excesses of the church at that time. And listen to the way that time was described in a quote by an old Anglican theologian. He says this, The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk, 
because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure distillate, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. (laughs) Neither goodness nor badness nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the cask. Uh, I don't know about you guys, I'm excited to drink grace straight again this year and feel its effects on everything in our lives. And that's why we want to jump into Romans. We need this reality. We need Jesus so much more than we realize. And, he, and he's here and he wants to help us and we can trust him. And so right now what I want to transition into communion. I'll call the worship team up here. And I want to kick off this series um, by taking communion. So if you guys have, uh, by the way, if you guys don't have this, raise your hand uh, if you're a member uh, of Restored. Member of Restored in good standing, uh, go ahead and grab one of these. It's tricky to open. Real quick, if you guys would just kind of close, if you're able to, I know it's tricky with kids and stuff if you're responsible for them. Um, But for those who are able, uh, would you just close your eyes for a second? And would you just remember for a second why you needed Jesus in the first place? When did you see your need for him? I lead a Bible study on Sunday nights, and last week I asked the group, I said, um, where do you need Jesus right now? Like, you actually know you need him. I know we, we know we need him for everything. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But where do you feel your need for him? And people gave different answers. And it was beautiful because we saw, actually, we, we still do need him. But I want you to remember, where, where was that first moment of needing him? Do you remember where you were, what was on your mind? It might've been your conversion, it might've been later, but that moment where you really saw, man, I need Jesus. Just take a moment to, to thank him for his gift righteousness. Thank him for his work and his life, his death, his resurrection, his pursuit of you. Just thank him in your own way, in your heart. Go ahead and pull the the wafer out now. Eat that and go ahead and drink the juice. Only way to make the wafer go down. Jesus, thank you for your righteousness that we couldn't earn and that we can't lose. Thank you for a new identity. Thank you for a new standing. Thank you for a new father. Thank you that my feelings aren't king. Your truth is. My feelings take me to some dark places. 
but they're not necessarily true. Would you meet us in the dark places? Would you remind us of what is true? Would you remind us that you haven't given up on us, you haven't forsaken us, you haven't left us, that you see us, that you know us, that you love us, you love us at our worst, you died for us at our worst, and you see us at our best in the future. And you love the person that's wrestling with the in-between, that's on that journey of transformation and restoration. And it's all because of what you've done for us, that any of this is possible. So thank you, Jesus. We, we, we want to worship you now. It's your name we pray. Amen. Um, if you're able or, and willing, would you stand? Uh, for, we're just going to do two songs of musical worship, responding to the grace of Jesus.